Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On The Wing Podcast. Coming at you with a brand new episode featuring, uh, well, returning co-host Marissa Jensen from Nebraska. has been on a couple of episodes, including the Rooster Road Trip, and our featured guest for this episode is Jorge George Ramirez. But before we introduce Mr. Ramirez, uh, Marissa, welcome back. Tell our listeners, or remind our listeners, uh, who you are, what you do with the organization. Thanks, Bob. Well, I'm excited to be on, and I'm excited to be here as a co-host and chat with you and, and George. Um, I am the Education and Outreach Program Manager for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, um, which allows me to work with our Women on the Wing Initiative and our National Youth Leadership Council, which are uh, both just incredible programs um, that I'm very, very passionate about. So I'm excited to be here and, and talk a little more with you guys today. And you do, you play a big role in reaching out to audiences beyond our core. And that's a big part of why you're on this particular episode as well. Yeah, that's correct. Just trying to reach a more diverse audience, regardless of age, race, gender. Um, we want everybody to be involved. And without further ado, our featured guest for this episode, we're going to talk about three topics with this gentleman. First, we're going to talk about quail hunting in the West. Second, we're going to talk about bird hunting without a bird dog. Very controversial. And the third piece is creating an environment for bird hunting and conservation to be in more inviting uh, in particular to the Hispanic community. So our featured guest to bring all these topics together, it's it looks like it'd be Jorge Ramirez, but he pronounces it George Ramirez. We'll talk to him about that. He's also known as the Upland Jitsu on Instagram. Uh, George is a freelance writer with more than two decades of experience bird hunting in his home state of California and neighboring Arizona. His passion is quail, and it's resulted in the creation of Upland Jitsu, his website and blog dedicated to the art and traditions of upland hunting. George, welcome to On the Wing Podcast. Thank you very much, Bob and Marissa. It's a, it's a pleasure. Um, yeah, and just to kind of touch on my name, obviously it is Ore Ramirez. Most people do know me, however, by George. It's just a simplification, uh, English simplification, I should say, uh, for Jorge. Uh, most of my family call me George, so it's a, it's a way. It's also a way to differentiate me from my my father, whose name is also Jorge. So, uh, it, it's better than Junior. <laughs> <laughs> I am I am right there with you because my grandpa was Robert, my dad was Robert. Now they both went by Bob. But for the longest time, uh, I went by Bobby. Okay. <laughs> so all my co- all my coaches, all my girlfriends always called me Bobby. My mom called me Bobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I might start so, calling you Bobby. Yeah, that's a little, <laughs> that, so, has, that has a ring to it. <laughs> so is that really the decision? Like your dad was Jorge, so just to differentiate. 
Yeah, I th- I, yeah, I think that was just you know easier. You know, obviously it was uh, you know when I was younger, it was Georgie. You know, my my brother and my sisters. You know, my my sister still calls me Georgie, but you know, it, it it most people call me George. Most of my friends, most of my family call me George. Yeah. Um, t- tell us a little bit. Of, I, I I gave a a long winded intro uh, for for who you are and your kind of your personal brand, but put it in your own words. Um, give us a, a overview of. Who is George Ramirez, the Upland Jitsu? <laughs> sure. So, I've I've uh, been around hunting uh, pretty much all my life um, to some degree. Um, I've, uh, for the most part, have been a, a you know I was born and raised in Southern California. I lived most of my life in Southern California. Um, I did a short stint in Arizona and ended up coming back. Here I am. And I did get into, I, I was primarily hunting deer. My, my dad was a big deer hunter when I was, when I was a lot younger. So I was around a lot of deer hunting. I, I initially, that was my, my segue into hunting was with, with deer, with black-tailed deer out here in Southern California. Um, it wasn't until much later in life where I started taking upland hunting a little more seriously. Um, that was more my like my early adult adulthood or around my my 20s and whatnot so um got my start into upland hunting with you know the preserves and when i moved out to arizona and that's when i really got into in, into hunting quail and brought that passion back to california when i moved back here and uh haven't looked back since um so where did the uh where did the name upland jitsu come from sure it's a it's it's a pretty um People get a little confused by it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also have a, a big passion for uh, martial arts. Um, that's something that's always been with me as well, you know, as, as, as far as I can remember. You know, as a child, you know, I was in karate. I uh, grew up uh, wrestling and I, I did a little bit of uh, judo and jiu-jitsu. And currently, you know, I'm still involved in, in martial arts to a degree. Um, jitsu is, is, uh, is, is typically... When you, know, when you talk about jiu-jitsu, for instance, uh, the, the the part jitsu basically means the art of. Uh, okay. The, the, the jiu in jiu-jitsu means gentle, so it's basically the gentle art, which jiu-jitsu Ooh. isn't really all that gentle, to be quite honest. But <laughs> <laughs> and that's basically where that comes from. So it's, it's kind of a uh, you know, weird, I guess, way of combining both my my passions in life, you know, you know for both martial arts and, and upland hunting. And but, art too. Yes. That's pretty neat. Thank you. What, what's your, what's the art component of your background? Uh, so the, the actual, like actual art? Yeah. Yeah. So I've, uh, this is actually something that I've actually kind of revisited in my life. It, it was something that art in general was something that I was really, um, really passionate about when I was a lot younger. Um, I, I, Wish I had the opportunities to pursue it as a as a job when I was a lot younger and you know as an early adult you know unfortunately that isn't that dream doesn't always come true for a lot of people unfortunately um, and it's again something that I just kind of revisited I think with uh, upland hunting you know just your it's I feel like art is really intertwined when it comes to upland hunting to be quite honest I mean you have writers you have you know people that write prose and and art in general I mean there's there's so many good artists out there when it comes to upland hunting that it, it just it, that passion rebubbled up to the surface and I'm you know 
kind of doing the art thing as well. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of doodles, a lot of sketches and whatnot. Well, you talked about um, kind of picking up upland bird hunting a little bit later as an mm. adult. Uh, I have no idea how old you are. Based on Instagram, I'd, I'd assume you're in your early to mid-30s. Is that... I w- I'm actually getting closer. No, well, I shouldn't say I am getting closer. I will be 40, actually, this year. Okay. At the so, end of the year. Uh, so how long ago did you make that transition from so I, deer hunting yeah. to up? So I, I had my initial my initial introduction to it was with my dad. And this was maybe later in the 90s. This was later in the 90s. And he had picked up a a Remington Peerless, which I actually own now. I, he actually passed that down to me to pass down to my daughter at some point. Hmm. And he picked that up in the late 90s, and he kind of fiddled around with quail hunting. I had a single shot, uh, Stevens 20-gauge for a while, and we kind of just tromped around out in the you know out in the bush where you know we, we saw quail from time to time while out quail hunting, but... Uh, we didn't have very much success to be quite honest. Uh, it wasn't something that he was super passionate about, obviously. So it wasn't something that he, you know, really stuck with. And, you know, I, I didn't really, uh, you know, again, get into it, get back into it till after maybe 21, 22, where I started, you know, getting an interest again. Mm-hmm. And there was just that whole, um, for myself, at least, uh, you know, just picking up a double gun journal at the local uh, Barnes and Noble. And, you know, I didn't really look back, you know, from that point. And, you know, I got into, uh, got myself into a couple of uh, um, pan uh, pheasant hunts. And I, it, 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 it did serve its purpose, obviously, but, you know, I, that wasn't quite what I was looking for, to be quite mm-hmm. honest. And shortly thereafter, a couple of years after, I uh, moved to Arizona, and you know Arizona is just a mecca for for upland hunting. And there's just there's so many public land opportunities out there that it was just you know it it, it made it made a lot more sense for me to get into upland hunting out there. Cool. Well, you're you've made the transition super easy for me because that's. <laughs> That's exactly where I want to go for the next part of our conversation is, sure. is quail hunting in the West. And mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to chase merns and gambles and mm-hmm. scalies, but you specialize in a bird that I've never been able to hunt. So you are going to give me the, the education, give us the education on <laughs> On California quail. So let's start with the basic. Do you call them California quail? Do you call them valley quail? Or do you call them <laughs> California you know valley quail? You know what? I, I kind of alternate. You know, I don't think I, I exclusively use one or the other. I think it, I think it depends on who I'm speaking to as well. Um, I think people often get confused when I, when I uh, you know, say California quail. That might be a generalization of all California quail. That, that exist in California, and we have three species here in California, which would be your gambles uh, and uh, you, obviously your valley quail and mountain quail as well. So I, I, tend, I tend to, uh, I guess, use valley quail a lot more than California quail when I'm, when I'm speaking to people that are not from California. Sure. All right. I've never done it. Tell okay. me about California quail hunting. 
they're an awesome bird you know it, <laughs> I, I i think you know obviously i got i think i i got my teeth cut with gamble's quail and the, you know those are you know always a hoot to hunt and um when i moved back to california it, you know they just they're they're just a fun bird to hunt you know for for one they're they're super super vocal birds uh, you know they'll talk to you all day and you know it's one of the tactics that i use and obviously when I, as a as a hunter that doesn't hunt with a dog, um, they're it's our state bird, you know. So that that's also a big plus. Uh, they're just cool birds, you, you know. You can find them just about anywhere. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't present a challenge when uh, you know you do try to hunt them. But you know they are pretty abundant out here, and and uh, a lot of the public land that we have available to us to hunt. I mean, they they live on the fringes of of, of you know suburban areas. Uh, you know, I could walk out. 100 yards from my house and we're we're bumping into to california quail belly quail out here so they're 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 a fun bird hunt uh you know they're covied up they're you know there's 30 40 birds flushing at a time that's you know it, it it still gets me to this day uh when you when i look at california valley quail like footage from television shows mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's like you know the hunter walks in at a dog on point and like 300 birds get up all at once. Is that just television mythology or is that how your hunting happens? You know, I, I definitely wish that there were 300 birds uh, flushing all at once because I would it would uh, it would actually mitigate my uh, my poor shooting <laughs> at times. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, there there are definitely large coveys. There are, there are large coveys that, you know, when they flush, you know, you're looking at, you know, anywhere from 30 to 40 birds at a time sometimes. And, you know, like, as I mentioned earlier, it just, you know, it still gets me to this day where it just, it surprises you and it just, you know, get it, it jump starts you and you're just like, whoa, this is, this is what, this is why I'm doing what I do. This right. is why I pursued this particular bird. So what's the, what's it like from, you know, California to Arizona, um, you know, as far as public land goes and the opportunities that you have What's your preference there, and what are some of the differences? I think, you know, I, I haven't had too much of a problem finding birds in California, to be quite honest. But I would honestly say that it's a lot, it's a lot easier to get into birds when, uh, when it comes to Arizona. Hmm. Easier to get into birds because there's more public land or there's more birds? I, I would just say accessibility. Okay. Okay. What, what about... Go ahead, Marissa. Well, I was thinking you talked a little bit about the, you know, valley quail and finding mm -hmm. them kind of on the edges there. You mm -hmm. know, is that, do you struggle with some of the, like, you know, being within urban and suburban communities and, and being kind of close there? Is that a struggle sometimes to find these birds? I would definitely say that's that's a bit of a, you know, a barrier, especially for someone that's trying to get into, into upland hunting out here. Um, you know, obviously you would probably have to travel a little bit Further, I would say I typically travel about an hour, hour and a half just to get into like a good area where I want to hunt. Sure. Um, that, that's not to say that, you know, within 30, 45 minutes of, of where I live that there aren't other areas, but, you know, you're typically having to travel a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. As I mentioned, you know, just walking outside my door, I, I, I could, you know, there's there's at least four or five coveys, local coveys out here that I, I bump on a daily basis when I go for my morning hikes. And oh wow, yeah, but unfortunately, it's all on private property. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
but still well, probably great to see and hear them. Absolutely. You know, it's fun. You know, I take my quail call out, you know, I take my daughter out and we kind of practice and, you know, the, the, the hatches out here have been pretty, pretty decent. So, you know, it's kind of fun to watch, you know, these, uh, you know, these fuzzy, fuzzy little baby quail, you know, grow up to full adults and, and yeah, it's just, it's just a fun thing to show my daughter and a fun thing to be around. Do you use the call in a hunting setting ever? I'm sorry. The the quail call. Do you use it in a hunting setting? Absolutely, 100. percent Okay, tell us about that. So uh, I I 100. I, I don't know why people don't use it more often. To be quite honest, as I mentioned, quail, uh, valley quail in particular, are very, very, very vocal. They respond to quail calls, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty consistently out here. Um, uh, for myself, you know, again, uh, having that bit of a disadvantage and not hunting with the dog, um, you know, I need every tool in the bag to, you know, help me be somewhat successful out there. So a quail call helps me locate coveys and also helps me call in uh, birds after I break up a covey as well. Hmm. So what kind of calls are you using? Uh, I particularly use um, a Jim Matthews call. It's a wooden call. Um, it's a great sounding call. Uh, the one that I actually have is a, is actually a three, like a, it has three calls in one. So basically it has a Valley quail call and it has a Gamble's quail call, which is, you know, they're, they're pitched a little differently. Also, obviously you can alternate between those to get your different pitches and get different responses and whatnot. It also has a mountain quail call, which I'm not too proficient in. And, um, but my understanding is that they do tend to be very vocal as well hmm. in responding. So you call you is it purely to locate them? Uh, to locate and also attract. Uh, I, I I the way that I it's almost like hunting mini turkeys to a degree when I, when I go <laughs> out. So after I bust a covey, you know, you typically you know when I bust a covey, I'm able to either either get a couple of shots off or, you know, if it's a you know, complete surprise and, and I miss, um, what I'll often do is I'll just hunker down and, and just call and they'll literally start coming back to you. They're, they're, you know, obviously a very social bird, you know, most, I'm not really sure how it works with Bob White, but you know, they're, they, they, they want to be covied up and I know obviously they are a covey bird as well, but these birds are just, they, they can't stand up, not, not being within the covey. So, you know, they're just, you know, they have, they have to come to the call. Hmm. That's fascinating. I, just makes me think of all the times, you know, I've tried turkey calls and duck calls and how horrible <laughs> I would be at a quail call. <laughs> it take quite a bit of time to learn and to, mm-hmm. you know, get the sound that you were looking for. Um, I, I, I have the general, see, I, I think it varies uh, with, with quail. I mean, the, I think the more you switch it up, the more that it, it tends to, you know, get them to call. Um, I, I have a general way of calling and I wouldn't say it is a hundred percent realistic, but you know, it, it is a general type of call that, that, that I'll be using and they, they, they tend to, to call. I mean, I've, I've heard other people use quail calls and they 100% sound like a quail. I mean, if I didn't know any better, I, I, I would think it, it was an actual quail calling. Hmm. Tell us about mountain quail hunting, because that's not something that you hear much about, especially related to California. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so I, I haven't had much luck with actually bagging my, my, my mountain quail just yet. They, they're a very elusive bird for, for myself. Um, they tend to, uh, to stick to a lot of uh, the thicker stuff. Um, and obviously they're, you know, within the range of about 3,500 feet on up, uh, typically around the fall time. Uh, the, you know, as their name suggests, you know, they're typically on, on the sides of mountains. So, you know, there's, there, it is a bit difficult, difficult hunting them. They don't tend to flush a lot as well. So obviously with, without a dog and without, a any kind of assistance when it comes to that, they you know, they are a bit harder to hunt uh, without a dog at least i'm finding that that to be the case okay so uh, you're you're teasing the transition to the dog component which uh -huh. which, which is which is almost next but i wanted to ask you know that california gets such a bad rap um for kind of being inhospitable to hunters you know especially you know it, it doesn't feel like non-resident hunters are even welcome there. Um, what's your what's your opinion as a California resident when it comes to hunting in the state of California? Is it is it super restrictive or is that more of an outsider's perspective? You know, I I, I would say that to be quite honest, that you know there are there are some restrictions, and I think if some people had the choice they would rather not have to deal with some of the restrictions however i think that's very very short-sighted um i think you know obviously as as you mentioned we get a very bad rap um i, I uh, there's a stereotype that california is nothing but but hollywood signs palm trees uh skyscrapers and infested with celebrities but uh there there, <laughs> there, there are very 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 many great opportunities for upland hunting out here. And, oh. you know, if, if, if you can look past the, uh, you know, some of the uh, restrictive regulations, then, then, you know, I, I think you would have a very good time. And if someone were to actually take that opportunity to do that, they would not really care about it. I think the biggest, the biggest issue that people have is the non-lead ammunition uh, regulation, which last year was fully in, uh, instated uh, for, for the entire, uh, um, state, including, uh, including upland hunting. So in other words, no matter what you hunt in the state of California, you have to shoot non-toxic shot, non-toxic shot, period. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. Um, have you found since that regulation, it's become easier to find non-toxic in that, those really small quail loads? Cause that, that's, it, you know, it seems like it's readily available um, for obviously for waterfowl, mm -hmm. for, for pheasant hunting, you know, prairie storm steel mm -hmm. is really easy. to. But, you know, here in the Midwest, like switching to non-toxic for rough grouse, you know, sevens and eights, mm -hmm. that's kind of that's kind of tough to find on store shelves. You got to send away through the Internet. Um, what about in California? Is that easy to acquire quail loads now? I would say the transition was pretty rough this past season as far as uh, availability went, um, especially if you were waiting to the last minute to get your ammunition like a lot of people were. So there were very, very limited quantities of, of steel shots still available in some of the smaller, smaller uh, retail stores. Um, unfortunately, there was still a lot of lead still on the shelf. However, it just, you know, that wasn't, 
you know, <laughs> not very, not very helpful for, for us if, uh, you know, we needed to use non-toxic, um, some of the guys, especially myself that use, uh, vintage shotguns, that's where it, it can get a little bit more difficult. You have to find a more specialized store or some of the bigger retail stores such as Bass Pro, which currently is about a good two hour drive for me, um, in order to get into like a, a Bismuth, for instance, um, mm-hmm. The the shot sizes are pretty limited. I, I tend to shoot sixes regardless, just because I I uh, that's my preference uh, as far as when I'm hunting quail. You know, I just I, I I tend to have a better luck with not crippling birds when I'm using sixes. Um, so that doesn't really affect me too much. But you know, if you were trying to transition over to uh, into dove, if you were trying to use anything other than steel, then obviously. Then you know you, you would have a little trouble finding finding uh, smaller smaller shot sizes. Well, you, you make a good point about sixes and trying <clears throat> to avoid crippling, uh, because you are a bird hunter that doesn't use a bird dog. Don't <laughs> own a bird dog, which which is a bit um, you know it, it's not talked about, but you're really not an anomaly. There's an awful no. lot of folks that that bird hunt that don't have a dog. Uh, tell us about why that's the right fit for you at this point in time. Sure. Yeah. So I, I you know, I definitely think. Well, I know for a fact that you know I'm obviously not the only one out there that hunts with a dog. Um, I think I'm probably one of the more vocal advocates when it comes to hunting without a dog, um, at risk of being burned at the stake, of course. um yeah so it wasn't really uh you know initially by design it was just you know i i I hunted with what i had and what i didn't have uh as i mentioned you know my my dad wasn't a a real big upland hunter so you know i didn't have that upland hunting heritage where that seems to be pretty consistent with with a lot of people that are uh upland hunters you know it's a, it's a bit of a heritage thing where you know they passed on you know the dog training thing down to you know father no grandfather and father to to son and that's something that i didn't really have uh furthermore um at least for myself uh, uh you know living in and around uh urban areas and just you know being the vagabond that i was uh, when i was younger it just didn't allow me to have that that opportunity to, uh, you know, have a dog or train a dog or have a mid-sized, very active dog in, in, you know, a small apartment or, you know, when I was living out of garages and whatnot. Um, so it just, it wasn't, it wasn't um, really conducive to my, my lifestyle at that time. And that just further, further perpetuated the, uh, the certain, the, the particular situation that I am without hunting without a dog today. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, it fits my lifestyle a little bit better. And it, it kind of already, it, 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 I think at this point, I, I've done it so long that I just I not necessarily don't know any other way to do it, but I just I, I really enjoy the challenge of doing it. You know, I've I've had opportunities to hunt with with uh people that I know that have dogs and I just I, I tend to want to do it without a dog when I go out. Um one thing that I learned is that uh, the hunt depends on how the, the hunt basically depends on the dog. You know, if the dog is feeling out of it, if the dog is, you know, tired, or if the dog gets injured, then, you know, that's pretty much, you're done. There's <laughs> other reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bob got to see what happens when I would prefer to hunt without a dog. Uh-huh. 
sometimes they tend to hunt for themselves or okay and, uh, <laughs> but uh i that was i was going to ask you if you'd had experience hunting behind anybody else's dog um, absolutely and, and yeah. you know what were your impressions of that situation you know what did you enjoy or what did you find you know really yeah, different you know i i, I think yeah I've, I've had you know just to answer your question yes 100 i've had you know pretty, pretty good amount of opportunities to, to hunt with, with, with people that had dogs. And I think that was their attempt to convert me over to hunting with a dog. Um, I know I 100%, you know, I think it's a, you know, I think that is a very, very, um, cool part of our, of our heritage when it comes to upland hunting. You know, I, I respect it 100%, you know, I respect uh, what, what goes behind training that dog and, and going out there and, and locating birds. You know, I just think it's a, you know, it's a very cool thing. Does it fit into, you know, what I do and, and my lifestyle currently, probably not, but, you know, I 100%, you know, love what people do with it. I love the passion behind it. And I, um, yeah, just, it's not, not for me just right now. It, you, you teased about being, um, uh, kind of <laughs> criticized online or, or people, <laughs> people get, taking it to task. Do, do people really, uh give you grief online for not being a bird hunter without a dog you know i i think it, it happened a lot more when i when i was um being a little bit more vocal at it in the beginning of you know me starting my my website and and you know my subsequent uh social media um platforms as well um i still get it from time to time you know I, I'll, I'll get a message and you know from time to time and you know someone will just you know, ring me and say, "Oh, it's really, really unethical of you to hunt." You know, with without a dog, and you know, I get that from time to time, and mm. I'll often make my case and 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 you know, try to uh, I guess explain how I do it and how it's a little bit differently, and 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 the way that I approach uh, you know locating birds. Uh, you know, it takes a lot takes a lot of discipline um, if you're going to do it ethically anyway. And I, I, I take every, every step to ensure that I recover my birds. And, you know, fortunately I haven't had too many of those. And I can't say that that always happens for, for people that have dogs. I know it happens more often than it doesn't. And, you know, I, I yeah, for, for the most part, I think most people are accepting of it and understand it. Um, and, you know, the, the people that are the more vocal ones that are, against what I do are, are far and in between, but, you know, I do get it from time to time. That, that's good. I mean, there is, there's certainly a case to be made mm -hmm. a bird hunt without a dog. I mean, I'm a pretty vocal proponent of, of mm -hmm. loving dogs, but, but I did grow up, uh, in a, in the upper peninsula of Michigan with the Brittany that didn't really want to hunt with me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so the dog would go, one direction and I'd go the other and, you know, rough grouse hunting in particular from the types of birds that I've had experience, you can absolutely 100% make a case that you could be more successful rough grouse hunting without a dog. Sure. Um, sure. Tell us, tell us about quail hunting because quail hunting is different, but you've, you've already teased like, okay, you shoot sixes. So a little mm -hmm. bit more bang to, so you you avoid crippling. What tell us some of the other thing other ways that you compensate for the the dog not being a component of your approach. I'm a, I'm assuming there's 
Yeah, well, the other thing you've talked about is calling the birds in. Mm -hmm. uh, there's probably a shot, shot selection component. What else goes into your thought process? Yeah, I think uh, my approach, and you know, this is just based on my my particular experience. You know, growing up as a as a deer hunter is, you know, I just I approach it with uh, a lot more methodically when when I'm going into the season. So I'm doing a lot of pre scouting. Um, you know, before the season starts, uh, you know, months in advance. And I also do it a couple of weeks out before the actual season starts. And um, I think just general tracking, that's something that I think people don't, you know, in the Upland community don't, don't do a lot of, obviously, you know, if they're relying on a dog to locate birds. So, you know, obviously, you know, we're looking for sign. Um, I also incorporate binoculars in my, in my, my vest as well. So, you know, I'm looking far out and, you know, I'm, I'm looking for sign. And, you know, when I see the sign, that's typically where I, I make my, my approach, uh, uh, to these coveys. And, you know, obviously a, a big, a big, uh, a big tool in my bag is, is the, is, is the quail call. And I, I think, you know, again, I just, I don't know why more hunters don't incorporate that, uh, in their, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, equipment for upland hunting, um, and especially quail out here. Um, I've never yeah. even seen a quail call for sale anywhere. Do you, wow. do you have them for sale on upland jitsu? No, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I've, I've, I've thought about maybe possibly doing eventually. Um, uh, there, there's actually a gentleman out here that is, is pretty well known in, in, in our community, uh, Jim Matthews, uh, you know, he's hunted this, this, uh, area out here for decades and, you know, he's a, you know, he's a real special guy. And then as far as like, when it comes to our, uh, our hall of fame, when it, when it comes you know, it, 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 he really, he really, 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 you know, if, if there was a hall of fame, you know, he, he, he would, he would be in it. And um, you know, he's always been a big proponent of uh, of uh, quail calls, and you know he manufactures these quail calls by hand, and uh, you know they're they're beautiful pieces of art, and you know also functional. Uh, so yeah, they're 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 out there. They're out there. I mean, if you if you go to a Bass Pro Shop, you know you you walk around in the call section, you know you'll find it in the corner of of a of an area <laughs> where, where they sell calls, and it's usually like this rinky dink piece of plastic that you know is is effective, but it, you know they're not the best sounding, of course. Huh. You mentioned binoculars, uh -huh. and, and I was thinking about that, and I was like, do do California quail or do Gamble's quail set out? like a century bird that's yes sitting up on a cactus okay so tell me about that that's where the binoculars come in yeah that, that comes I mean, i'm not specifically looking just for the century but i mean i'm also just looking out there for movement you know if i'm seeing movement at the base of of you know trees or bushes you know they tend to they tend to uh dart in between between these areas when there's open space so they'll, they'll typically dart or they'll walk underneath a uh, brush or or you know obviously there as you mentioned there are sentries as well and those guys will be you know a little higher up off the ground typically in, in a in a branch you know you have um, you know we don't have too much cactus out here where i currently live but uh there are you know a lot of um uh oak scrub oak out here so you know you typically see them in scrub oak uh, as, as a you know a little a sentry that'll you know alarm as soon as they start seeing uh, you know hunters or, or anyone come around. So we started talking about habitat. You know, mm -hmm. I think about Mern's quail or that that oak savanna, rolling hills mm -hmm. in Arizona. Gamble's quail, you know, the 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 choyas and the cactus, the more mm -hmm. desert 
the polar bear there. Mm. And I haven't ever hunted California, so tell me about the habitat of uh, where you're hunting California quail. Yeah, it can really vary out here in Southern California. Um, uh, you know, you have areas where there's Joshua trees and, you know, you have your cactuses. You know, there's there's you know, a little bit of choy out here in, in, in some areas. Obviously, if you go further out towards Arizona, you're, you're seeing probably a, a lot more choy out there. But uh, particularly where, where I hunt, you know, you're seeing a lot of uh, um, scrub oak. Um, you do get your... Uh, uh, the junipers out here as well, so you see a lot of that, a lot, a lot of juniper trees and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, scrub oak. Hmm. I I really really am interested in hunting California quail. You did, need to, did they, you need did to they, come they, out. <laughs> well, I, I was fishing for the invitation, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> do they uh, do they taste the same as uh, as California? Uh, I'm sorry, as gambles and merns. I would say that they, I mean, as, as, as far as, as far as my experience, you know, all quail pretty much taste the same to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously with variants uh, with what they're eating and whatnot, but I would say that in general, they taste the same. Cool. Do you have a favorite way of preparing quail? Uh, you know, it, in my household, it, it's, a, it's a little hard to get everyone to, to, to get, get on the same on the same uh, boat as far as it comes to preparation. My wife has actually been a lot more open to different types of ways of doing it, but the favorite way out here is in, 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 a, in a jalapeno uh, wrapped up in bacon uh, as, a, as a quail popper, basically. But uh, um, I, I, I do it a really simple way when, when, I, when I do it for myself. I just basically just grill it over, over uh, uh, a grill uh, with open flame and, you know, just kind of saute it on the side and cook it really, uh, I spatchcock it, I, I should say. So that's, that, that tends to, when it, when it comes out, it comes out really juicy. I, I, I can't stand a dry quail when it comes to dry quail. Right. Yeah. You, you have one, one child, a daughter? Uh, yeah, just, just my daughter. She's, yeah. uh, she'll be five this year. Uh, okay. Does yeah. she like eating quail? Uh, you know, she was a little bit more adventurous a couple of years ago this, this past year and, and, you know, going into her, her birthday, she's been a little bit more finicky. So it's been a little harder to get her to, to be a little bit more adventurous when it comes to eating quail or, you know, the things that I, that I, you know, rabbits or cottontails that I, that I shoot or, or fish. So it's, it's been a little harder these days, but that'll change hopefully. <laughs> that uh, transitions us into the the third component that uh, of this episode, and that's being more inclusive in the uplands. And as we, as an organization, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, we're working deliberately to be more inclusive doll races and ethnicities and mm -hmm. trying to portray um, not just in photography, but in voices and engaging, you know, audiences that we haven't traditionally done a good job of recruiting into the uplands and you know so so a really broadly based question you know what as a as a person of hispanic origin that's come to love the uplands as much as anybody um how can we as an organization at pheasants forever and quail forever be more welcoming to in your case the hispanic community yeah it's a I don't know if there's any one right answer uh, for that, um, you know. But I, I think there are some good places we could start. Uh, I, I think firstly we have to address uh, maybe maybe two things. Um, 
I think the first thing would be that I think the vast majority of the people who are currently hunters are, are living in, in rural areas currently. Um, and, you know, I, I guess to that point, most of those people that live in these rural areas are, are typically, you know, that our hunters are, are typically male and Caucasian. Um, the second point being, I think, I think it's a, uh, it's, it's pretty well known that these rural areas are starting to shrink and, you know, that might, that might, um, you know, be part of the problem that we're having as far as, you know, losing retention when it comes to, uh, to hunters. Um, a lot more people are moving away from these rural areas and they're moving to the cities. Uh, you know, they're going to schools, they're going to schools that are out, out in the cities. You know, they're, they're, they're vying for those jobs that are out in the cities. So I think the, the focus, uh, you know, should definitely be in, in the urban communities. Uh, uh, that, that's, that's very essential at this point, I think. And it's very crucial at this time. Um, I think we'd be surprised at how many people are, are interest, interested in um, self-sustainment, uh, conservation, and, and local food procurement. Um, and I think hunting kind of just it, it envelops, envelops uh, all of that. And I, I think that's a, we have a good opportunity there to, to kind of get people interested in hunting again. I looked up your, your membership record in the organization. Mm -hmm. I saw that you first joined Quail Forever in 2010. Do you remember what what the motivation was or what what uh, convinced you to make a commitment? You know, it's funny because I think right around that time is when I had just moved back to California. I was maybe maybe two years into California. I was back in California. And you know, I was at that time living in, uh, I want to say the South Bay area, and that's uh, just like south of like L.A. And... Uh, I think what I was looking for was just more, maybe more of a community. You know, I was hoping to, you know, get, get in touch with more, with more upland hunters such as myself. I mean, I, th I distinctly remember around that time being very, very uh, active in, in a lot of the uh, um, forums and, and, you know, the forum communities when it, when it came to upland hunting. And, and I was just, you know, kind of reaching out, trying to, you know, see if there was anyone that'd be interested in hunting and, you know, wasn't really getting too many, too many, uh, uh, knocks on the door, unfortunately, but you know, I, I was really looking for a sense of community when it when it came to upland hunting. It was it was starting to be, it had already been a passion of mine, but it was really starting to take off at that point. I think hmm. I should have asked you this when we were talking about the hunting section. Mm -hmm. You do you prefer hunting alone, or do you you know this searching for a community leads me to believe you were looking to hunt with with other folks. Yeah, I, I think you know, as a hunter, I, I think we all have that longing for you know a bit of um, um, a, a, you know a bit of a, a individual solace, you know, to be to be out there on our own and and just you know being one with nature. But uh, you know, quite I would say quite recently, and, and maybe not quite recently, but this is just something that's been kind of you know building up to the point where I'm at today is you know just you know having a community and 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 being able to teach someone um uh how to hunt and 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 to gather you know more people into this this great community that you know obviously i think it's a great community and 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 teach someone something that you know i've i've you know learned over the past few years and uh these past few years i've actually uh took time to to be, to be a bit of a mentor for for a couple of uh um people that have actually become really great friends and you know i that's the, the point where i'm at today that's what I was going to ask you is if you mentored folks and if you 
what you found to be the key components uh, and if it's sticking with those friends. Yeah, um, you know, I, you know, again, this is something that you know has has built over time, and I, I had I had to take a lot of a, uh, um, I had to be really introspective when it came to you know what 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 am I what am I um, what am I contributing to you know this passion? You know, is it something that I'm just you know am I doing it just solely for myself or for my if. I, and I, I think that's great. And I think I, you know, I was like that for a very long time, but I think that's very short sighted. You know, I think if you, at least for myself, if, if you, and I think this is true for, you know, probably a lot of us and including yourself, Bob and Marissa, but you know, if you love something this much, you know, you want to share it with other people. And, you know, that was kind of my motivation to start my, my website and, and to, you know, teach as many people as I could, you know, by writing articles and, 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 uh, you know, uh, this blog that I have and, and doing videos and whatnot, but, you know, it really, you know, I, I had this, this urge and this, this calling to just, you know, mentor someone and, you know, I was looking for that right person. And, you know, I, I, I did actually find my, 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 you know, my, my first mentee, which uh, his name is Omar. And, you know, I gave him the opportunity to, you know, to kind of, you know, right under my wing and, you know, I, I took the opportunity to, you know, actually learn, you know, to be a, a good teacher as well. And that's been kind of a, a roller coaster of an experience as well. I mean, that's something that a lot of people don't consider, but, you know, it's, you know, you're learning as a teacher, as a mentor as well. And, you know, I, 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 it's been a great opportunity and mm. we are, uh, so his, his girlfriend was actually hunting with us from that, that first, that first season. So we've been, we've been together as far as, uh, as, as friends now as uh, for about, three se- we're going on our fourth season now so uh last season uh, his his uh, so uh, no let me back up so the season before that his uh, his girlfriend actually had her her shotgun so she took it out but we weren't able to connect with with any quail um last season actually she she finally got was able to to take one of her first quails so you know that's that's an awesome experience uh i didn't have a lot to do with that he, he actually he actually you know has been kind of mentoring her on the side so i think that's great you know he's gone from 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 mentee to teacher and it's you know it's it's, it's kind of just ballooning from there and it's 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 awesome it's great to see that you know i i love that and you know we're still we're still hunting together and i think uh you know it's 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 important to you know when it comes to mentoring, I, you know, it, it, people could always say that they mentor, but I think it's really, it's really uh, important for someone to, to um, stick with that relationship for for some time, just because you know I, I think there's just a big learning curve when it comes to hunting, and it's very important to uh, to understand that when you're going into men, uh, mentoring someone as well. So you know, yeah, we stuck it out, and he's still hunting with me. I haven't I haven't drove, drove him crazy yet, and you know, here we are. <laughs> They, they talk about that a lot when, you know, we look at R3, which is, you know, recruit, retain and reactivate, but that social support being the, the really key element to getting somebody into, um, you know, identifying as a self-sufficient hunter mm-hmm. and, you know, being able to continue to go on their own. So it's great to hear your stories on how that's kind of worked. And then the mentee becomes a mentor. Yeah, it's awesome. One question that you know I have with for you, and I know that mentoring is is such a big part of your life now. You know what role does individual mentoring play in helping us diversify the uplands? Um, you know versus programs. I mean, what are some of the I don't know the the benefits of that one on one? 
You know, I think it definitely, you know, as you mentioned, it, it definitely gives someone that that uh, opportunity to, you know, it's a learning curve. You know, as I mentioned, it's it's you know, it's it's not a plug a plug and play um, deal where you know you're just you know bringing someone out to the uplands once and showing them once and then walking away from it. Unfortunately, um, it's a it's a it's a baby egg. You know, it's a it's a baby basically. You know, it's something that you have to rear up from from the beginning, and you know you have to. Uh, you know, go through all the hard stuff and the mistakes and, you know, the ups and downs and you send them off to college and, you know, they might, they, they might be coming back and living, living in your house, but, you know, it's, it's you know, every, I'm sure, sure every, every mentee is different, but, you know, to, to, I, I don't think it's, you know, it's something that's just going to be a plug and play thing. It's, it, it takes time and uh, anyone going into it, you know, both mentee and mentor need, need, need to understand that it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's going to be a bit of a, a, a long relationship to a degree. You talk about uh, being the, you know, having the baby and you have mm. a, you have a little girl of your own. I do. Uh, do you think she's going to grow up to be a bird hunter? You know, I, so I know one thing for sure, 100%, you know, she's going to grow up understanding what it is and why I do it and the importance of why we do it, why I do it. Um, my hopes is that she would, that she would grow up to be a hunter. You know, she has a shotgun waiting for her. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would, I would hope so. If not, then, you know, she at least has, she has the the knowledge and, and is educated enough to, to know why we do it and why it's important. Has she gone out with you? I have not taken her out just yet. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of gauging it. I think we're getting pretty close uh, to like, you know, going out, you know, we, we do small little hikes and whatnot. She's going through this phase where she's, she has a little bit of a fear of snakes. Um, and, and we haven't even seen a snake out here. <laughs> so, but you know, she has, she has in the back of her mind that, you know, she's going to bump into snakes and whatnot. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's overcoming that fear and it's just, you know, being, you know, becoming familiar with, you know, her surroundings and being out there as much as she can, where she's comfortable enough to go out with me. That's pretty fun. And yeah, you, it is. <laughs> you said she's five? Yeah, she'll be five in November. Yeah, she's still, you're right. She has, she has some time before that's probably um, a natural next step. Even the, probably the sound of a shotgun at her age is a little bit intimidating. Yeah. So yeah, we're we're definitely I'm I'm definitely hoping by maybe uh, next season, not maybe this season, but next season for sure when I might be getting her out. I, I started around that time, you know, I was on the heels of my dad and you know, I'm sure I, I lagged and I and I blew opportunities for him as far as you know, bagging his deer, but you know, he did take me out around that time. So, you know, I'm kinda gauging it off off of what I know and my experience. So we'll 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 see. Yeah. Uh, Marissa, you've been working with George on an upcoming article. So that's correct. Tell us about it. Yeah, so George and I have known each other, you know, mostly through social media for a little while, but we we recently were able to connect um, on the upcoming uh, Quail Forever Fall magazine. Um, So George goes into his story a little bit more in that article and you know, we touched on some of the things that we've been discussing today. And, you know, one question I was going to ask you, you know, George, as we talked about your daughter and, um, you know, George and I talked about my son as well, and just what we kind of hope that the uplands will look like for our children, whether or not they they do hunt, you know, what do we hope that uh, is available for them? And, 
um, just talked about, you know, what that looks like when it's a, an inclusive environment and um, creating a space for everybody in the uplands. And I think we all have that desire, right, George? And um, Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, and you know, trying to figure out how we can make those spaces open and welcoming for everyone. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think what makes any place welcoming, and you know, I think this is what we're all striving for, um, is just having something in common. You know, for for people on the outside looking in, and you know, we're we're specifically talking about diversity here, and and what makes a place welcoming, what makes this, you know, our, our community welcoming is having something in common with, with people. Um, it's, it's just human nature. It's like, a, uh, how do I want to play? It's like walking into a party and not knowing anyone versus walking to a party and seeing a couple of your friends, uh, people you have something in common with, um, with, uh, with people of color, with women, and uh, with other marginalized groups. Obviously, having platforms like this, uh, you know, giving you know people like me an opportunity to speak, and um, you know, there's people out there listening, and and you know, this we use, we need a lot more of this, uh, especially in these times. So, speaking of outreach, if folks mm. want to reach out to you, uh, how do they find you uh, on social media on your website? Uh, Give, give people an opportunity to connect with you. Sure. Yeah. So my my website is Upland Jitsu, uh, the art of uh, upland hunting, and I could be uh, you could reach that website at www.uplandjitsu.com. Um, one of my bigger, I guess, media platforms uh, would be Instagram. Um, you know, everyone kind of tends to go that way. They want to see the visual, uh, the visual, uh, you know just everything of, you know, how hunting works and whatnot. And that would be Instagram. And that's uh, at Upland underscore Jitsu. And Jitsu is J-I-T-S-U. That is correct. So uplandjitsu.com or Upland underscore Jitsu on Instagram. Absolutely. Got it. Okay. All right. And as, as we come to a close on this particular episode of On the Wing podcast, and before I, I – and get your closing thoughts, George, and, and you, Marissa. We're going to start with Marissa. But before your closing thoughts, I want you to tell our listeners about uh, a brand new event, an event that we just announced that's going to be happening here in the next couple of weeks. Tell us about the virtual Women Wine and Wild Game event. Yeah, you almost messed up the best part there with the wine. <laughs> yeah, no, we are so excited for this brand new event. Um, so it's our, our first ever uh, national virtual women, wine, and wild game that will take place on Thursday, August 20th at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. And we are welcoming um, our featured chef, Danielle Pruitt, to that show uh, she's a contributing editor for Meat Eater and founder of Wild and Whole. And Danielle is just a longtime supporter of the organization. She's been involved with our Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic for uh, the last couple of years at least. And just a fantastic individual. So she is going to come on the air and cook one of her favorite recipes. Um, Coca Vin? <laughs> we'll let you work on it. You're going to have to practice before we I know. I know. Everybody will, will want to sign off if I say it incorrectly once the show gets here. Um, but she will be uh, 
preparing her favorite dish for our audience, and they'll have the opportunity to receive the recipe ahead of time and cook during the show with her as she kind of walks us through everything. Or, this is my favorite, they can sit back and watch with their favorite glass of wine and cook the recipe at a later date if they so choose. So uh, as you mentioned, tickets just went on sale. Um, and so you can get those at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. Um, the tickets include a Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever membership and special gifts from our sponsors. Um, so this is made possible thanks to Walton's, um, who's a longtime supporter of our Women on the Wing initiative, as well as McFarland Pheasants and Pretty Hunter. So we are extremely excited and I hope to see a lot of our audience there. So McFarland Pheasant, also known as Pheasant for Dinner, is Correct. where people can buy pheasant meat. So they're partnering. And as you mentioned, tickets are on sale now. It's $40. That's correct. Includes, it includes a $35 Pheasants Forever or Quail Forever membership. And then all these prizes and access to this virtual event. So it's yes. basically become a member or renew your membership. And for $5 more, you get all these wonderful additions. So yeah, and entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. a perfect time for our upcoming seasons, right? It, it's, it's really an exciting, and as you mentioned, Danielle has been a really, really um, excellent advocate for our mission as a speaker on the wild game cooking stage the last couple of years. And she's really entertaining and just a pro when it comes to, to cooking wild game. So that'll be, it's going to be a really interesting, entertaining um, event. So invite listeners, you get to see Marissa, uh, her face on the screen, <laughs> yes. listening, just listening to Marissa on our podcast. So um It'll be a really fun event. Please uh, help us support our efforts to include more women in the outdoors and, and get involved in this event. It's not just for women. Guys, you're invo invited too. But uh, this is another one of those efforts that we're making to be very deliberate about encouraging uh, women that we want them involved in our organization and our conservation mission. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I just like the conversations that we're having today. And, you know, as I think about what we've talked over the last, you know, hour about um, is just the the need to, you know, provide spaces where everybody feels welcome. And we want to provide opportunities for everybody and, and let them know that um, we want them here at the table with us. We're excited. And, you know, just chatting with George, you know, not only today, but over the last several months and year, um, you know, it's just a great example of leadership in the outdoors and, and trying to be inclusive and, um, you know, be a voice for others. And you know, this was just a, a great show to chat about that some more and excited to be a part of it and looking forward to the article in our upcoming magazine that dives into George's story a little bit more and just really appreciate you talking with us today, George. All right, George. Marissa passes you the microphone. Your closing thoughts for this episode of On the Wing Podcast. Uh, you, you know, again, I, I you know, I, I appreciate you know being given this opportunity, given the platform to to speak and to uh, uh, you know, just just talk about this this uh, 
you know, this topic, these issues that, you know, we're, we're currently facing, you know, as far as, um, you know, the lack of diversity and in, in, in the upland hunting community and, and hunting in general, basically. So I, I, I think these are great conversations, you know, to have um, uh, now, especially now. And uh, I, I just, I thank you guys for, for, for doing this. Um, I, you know, I just want to, you know, let people know that, you know, they're, this, is a great community and you know there are are I know probably a lot of people out there that are that are um maybe a little hesitant to to dip their toes in it but you know I I, I think you know 99% of the people out here are going to be you know super welcoming so you know just take that opportunity to to go out there you know reach out and and uh you know just ask someone if you know ask someone about it and you know for those people that are potential mentors you know don't don't be afraid you know don't don't be afraid to to uh, I, I think the biggest the biggest fear for someone that is potentially going to be a mentor is is failing someone, and that you know that's 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 all a part of growing. You know, that's a part of uh, strengthening uh, you know your your own passions and 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 whatnot. And I just think uh, you know more people should just take that opportunity to to reach out to someone and, and offer to be a mentor. Yeah, really well said, and and I'll. Um... I'll echo some of the the phrase you used early on when you called yourself a Renaissance man. Because, uh, you know, it, I mentioned earlier that you, you've been a Quail Forever member dating back to 2010. You know, this, this is, that's a decade, a full decade before, you know, this moment in time when organizations like ours are trying very deliberately to be more inclusive. And you were 10 years ahead of, your time in, in, in being proactive and getting involved in conservation in the uplands. And, um, you know, from on behalf of our organization, sincerely appreciate your membership and your commitment to conservation and, you know, leading with a positive attitude towards inclusivity. That's uh, your tremendous role model for all of us to uh, emulate. So thank you for giving of your time and your membership dollars to the cause of conservation. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It, it's been a really, really fun, fun discussion today, Marissa. <laughs> thank you so much for uh, riding shotgun as co-host. It's great having you back. We're going to do a couple of these here in the next few weeks. Awesome. We are. You can get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, we got Danielle Pruitt lined up for uh, for an episode here in the not too distant future, so so folks should stay tuned. Uh, we'll be talking about that virtual uh, Women Wine and Wild Game event here in the near future. Um, folks, please reach out to the Upland Jitsu himself, not Jorge. <laughs> that's his dad, George Ramirez. The Upland Jitsu at uplandjitsu.com or Upland underscore Jitsu on Instagram. Uh, hell of a fun follow. Great conversation today. Um, thank you, George, for your time once again. And It was my pleasure. It is our pleasure having you. And uh, folks, if you're not currently a member of Quail Forever or Pheasants Forever, we'll invite you to, to join us. We need every man, woman, child, with a dog or without a dog, uh, doesn't matter what race, religion, creed you belong to. If you're a Yankees fan, we'll thank you. Um, please, 
<laughs> we'll take, we need everybody to get involved in the cause of conservation. Um, in our habitat in our uplands are too important. So I am Bob Sapier with uh, leaving you with one final thought. Always follow the dog. Well, in this case, always follow George. He'll take you to the quail. Where's <laughs> the quail call? <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast, folks. Talk to you next time.